The 2016 session of the Missouri General Assembly is in the books, and State Representative Robert Cornejo had a lot to do with getting plenty of legislation across the finish line. The St. Peter's Republican joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight, seven, six, six five, five four, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. I say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Alongside me in our St. Louis studios, we have, as always, colleague Joe Manis. And returning for the second time, I think it's been almost exactly a year, we have as our special guest today... I'm Robert Cornejo, state representative for the 64th District. He, he represents part of St. Charles and Lincoln Counties. And we brought him on because he, I think he was a pretty big player in the end of the legislative session. Yes. He handled a lot of bills that I think are pretty important and I think could provide a pretty good insight on what happened. I, I think the first thing that I noticed, we both were there in 2015 and 2016, a little bit less uh, crazy than 2015. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say on, on both sides of the of the building, both the House and the Senate, it was a little bit ran a little bit more smooth that last. last yeah, the week. last week. Yeah, twenty fifteen will go down in history. It's <laughs> probably one of the wackiest and and also one of the saddest uh, legislative yeah. sessions. So, what do you think made things run more smoothly this year? Obviously, the House Speaker Todd Richardson is still the Speaker, so that's one thing. And also, the Senate didn't previous question anything. So, what do you what do you think led to the 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 session ending kind of in a more harmonious note than the, the prior year. Yeah, you know, I think it, it's just a circumstances surrounding. Uh, you know, we we brought up um, a veto override on paycheck protection uh, that was sitting over in the Senate, uh, and they went to that. I think late was that late Thursday. Yeah. And, yes. And, you know, and that had the potential to basically shut down and. and shut everything down that last day but uh you know eventually the the democrats sat down and we we got to a vote and turned out they fell one one vote short but if that had gone the other way that could have completely changed everything now by that you know, we, we mean that the, the in effect the democrats blocked it blocked Correct. the override Correct. Yes, because they weren't able to get enough votes to override it. Yeah, the Republicans weren't. So give me a sense of some of the major things that happened in the last week some of which that you handled personally. Yeah, some of the things I handled personally was, um, first of all, there's been a series of United States Supreme Court cases that have essentially ruled that the way we sentence um, juveniles to first-degree murder com- that are convicted of first-degree murder is unconstitutional. So one of the things uh, I worked with Senator Dixon out of the Springfield area, who's chairman of the, the Senate Judiciary, uh, we worked with prosecutors and the, the Fair Sentencing of Juveniles uh, Association to come up with a an agreeable solution to that problem. We were able to get that passed. Uh, also, we did basically what everybody affectionately refers to as the Senate Bill 5 follow-up right. from last year dealing with municipal courts and, and the way municipalities are able to govern. And then um, there's also, I was involved with um, what's been called the, the beer coolers or the beer growlers language. Yes, that, that or, was a major point mm-hmm. of debate in the Missouri House. Yep, and you know, beer growlers is something I've been working on for four years. I believe it may have been the very first bill I had ever filed in in the legislature. Uh, and then uh, this past year, uh, Anheuser-Busch came forward with a, a possible, what's called a portable beer coolers. Uh, you know, for example, if you walk into your nearest convenience store, you'll see cool little portable coolers out there for Red Bull, 
or for Coca-Cola. However, you won't see one for any alcohol because of the three-tier system, um, the way alcohol is set up here in the state of Missouri, it wasn't allowed. So what this bill did was allow that those small portable coolers and, and retail outlets. Now, do you think, I mean, there was a big fight between uh, the major uh, brewers like Anheuser-Busch and some of the uh, craft brewers. I mean, some of them were against us, and I think weren't some of them for it? I mean, it was kind of complicated. At least that was the perception I got. And you were a major player in that. How do you think things shook out? Yeah, you know, with, with the way the, the bill was originally filed, it turned out completely different than the way it actually ended up being passed. Uh, you know, the Small Brewers Guild, they did come together and oppose the measure. Uh, however, you know, Anheuser-Busch, and, and it wasn't just Anheuser-Busch that supported it. I mean, there was a whole list of, you know, the, the Retailers Association, Correct. the Gre- uh, Grocers Association, all the Anheuser-Busch distributors. Uh, so, you know, half the distributors in the in the state also uh, were in support of it. Um, so over the, the course of negotiations, you know, we we did, we did gave 10 different concessions to Small Brewers Guild, and ultimately they still wanted to oppose it. Um you know, at the end, though, we were able to get Boulevard Brewery out of the Kansas City area, moved to neutral on the issue, uh, as well as Miller Coors. You know, so ultimately, you know, you, you have people all over the place as far as, um, you know, supporting it, opposing it, and a lot of neutral people. Were, was the reason that some small brewers opposed this is, was because An- they felt like Anheuser-Busch would have too much of a, an advantage based off of this, and it would have made it harder for the small craft breweries to really get a foothold in. That's kind of what I've heard errantly. I admit I haven't followed this issue as much as I should since I really do like craft beer quite a bit. But uh, is that what happened here, basically? Yeah. You know, they're afraid that, you know, the craft brewer's argument is that, you know, they don't have as much money as some of the big boys in town. Uh, You're not just, again, not just Anheuser-Busch, but Miller Coors. You know, this is a law that's already in place up in Wisconsin. It's already in place out in Colorado where they're based out of. Uh, But, you know, they're afraid that they're not going to have enough money to offer these coolers to the retail outlets. And so some things that they were afraid of is, you know, if Anheuser-Busch puts a a cooler in these retail uh, stores, that only Anheuser-Busch products were going to be put in those portable coolers. So one of the the 10 concessions that we gave – to the, the Small Brewers Guild was that there, nowhere in the contract can it be mandated that only, you know, one certain brand goes into that cooler. Any The retailer has the option to put whatever he, he or she wants into that cooler. Which I'm sure will make uh, people who are not exactly fans of Anheuser-Busch beer a little bit happier. Well, that <laughs> seemed to be kind of a turning point in the House debate because I was monitoring the House babysitting the house um, that whole week. And it seemed like the turning point with that was when you were emphasizing some of these changes. Absolutely. That, yeah. I'm, I'm a home brewer myself. You know, I, my, my group that I'm with, we've won three different medals. I mean, I, I like to think we're, we're pretty good at craft beer. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't think I would do anything that would completely run craft brewery out of the craft breweries out of business here. You know, I think this is something that, you know, is, is a, it's a small step. Uh, to you know, allow more refrigerator space. If I go into a retail store, I'm and I, I love my craft beer. I don't care how many coolers for, full of Anheuser Busch products are there. I'm going to go and pick up the the craft beer product that I I went to that store to purchase. Yeah, and with with no disrespect to some of my friends who work for Anheuser Busch, like former state representative Don Callaway, who I don't think lives in the state anymore. 
I probably would do the same thing. So let's let's transition though to the Senate Bill Five expansion. Yes, yes, and the criminal court stuff because a lot of that ended up being related. So um, I have been following the expansion to Senate Bill Five because I covered Senate Bill Five pretty closely. This basically does, I think, several different things. For one thing, it kind of creates a scale of fines that can be done for non-traffic violations. Um, it also makes sure that there's a, there's a, there's now a cap about how many traffic fines a city can keep in its budget. It now includes non-traffic fines in that cap. And it also um, changes disincorporation policy in the state pretty dramatically. Just kind of, I know I just kind of summarized the bill for you, mm -hmm. but just kind of explain why you felt it was needed and what you think the significance of it is. So again, you know, kind of going back and, and looking, you know, there, for the, for years there's been what's called Max Creek Law in, in effect that basically says how much a municipality can base its budget off of traffic tickets. Uh, it started out at 50%. It's been lowered down off through the years. So Senate Bill 5, what it did last year was it said uh, lowered the maximum to 20% of a municipality's budget uh, can be based off of traffic tickets for the whole state except for St. Louis County is 12.5%. So what Senate, what, one of the things that we saw almost immediately after Senate Bill 5 went into effect and lowered that amount down down to those figures was, uh, for example, I know uh, Senator Schmidt likes to give the example of the, the woman in Pagedale who was chronicled extensively with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. One of the things I like to point out is I believe it was the city of St. Anne almost immediately after Senate Bill 5 went into effect that close to tripled their, their fine amount for, for tall weeds. You know, and I think that's something that Again, when municipalities want to provide services and base their budget off of the services that they're going to provide to to their residents, you know they have several different options. And I think one of those is go to the people and say, "Hey, are you? This is the service we're willing to provide. Are you willing to pay either a user fee or increase taxes to to provide these services?" And I think one of the things that these municipalities have gotten away from is being able to do that. And hey, why not just you know ticket some people that are that are driving through our community and such? So, um, you know, this is something that's going to crack down and like I said said before it's kind of a second step with Senate Bill 5 being the first step to to running in some of these government abuses. Now Senate Bill 5 I mean just for listeners I mean among other things it 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 restricted by percentage how much of a uh, uh, municipality's income could come from fees and stuff and that got tossed out for various reasons but now with this new revision do you foresee other changes in future legislative sessions dealing with this or do you think the General Assembly is going to feel like, okay, we've dealt with this. We're moving on. Yeah, you know, I, again, I, I think if if municipalities had done what we believe the, the correct response would have been, uh, you know, I don't believe there would have been a Senate Bill 572, which was this year's bill, which I don't think I, I touched on to the listeners that what Senate Bill 572 did was then bring into that cap also minor or, uh, or municipal ordinance violations such as tall grass, cutting weeds, um, things like that. Uh, into that cap amount. And so, again, you know, if, if I think municipalities had started to go to their, their residents and said, hey, these are the services we're willing to provide, are you willing to pay for them? You know, then I, then I don't think there would have been much of a follow-up to, to Senate Bill 5. Um, you know, also uh, one of the things we kind of started to touch on in Senate Bill 572 this year was uh, some, some of the conflict of interest things. Uh, 572 didn't quite tackle it head on because we were afraid of some separation of powers, constitutional constitutional issues. Uh, but, you know, I think, again, that's something that, you know, if the Supreme Court were to issue some rules regarding conflict of interest, uh, that would have been another section that Senate Bill 572 wouldn't have touched on. This is a really uh, 
tight legal question. But as Joe alluded to, there is a legal case against the, the law that was Senate Bill 5. Right now, because of the Cole County Court ruling, the, the dual cap of 12.5% for the county and 20% has effectively been, is on hold. Everybody's at 20% now. Um, that could change depending on what another court does. But but this bill, does it still keep that 12.5, 20% cap inside of there in case the court reverses itself, basically? Correct. It does still keep that two-tier system there uh, as far as the, what the percentage cap is. Uh, that's something that, you know, Senator Schmidt, you know, who's the the, Senate, the bill sponsor, and I have talked extensively about, you know, it, the whole argument is, you know, that this is a special law that only applies to St. Louis County, and so therefore, you know, there shouldn't be any special laws. Uh, however, those same municipalities that bring that argument are the same municipalities that uh, reap the most amount of benefits on the special law that is <laughs> St. Louis County pool tax. And so, you know, I think they are fighting, you know, they're dealing with a double-edged sword there that if they want to keep going down that route, they're very, they very well could be cutting off the nose despite the face. Now, the disincorporation piece of this, this has actually been something I've been following for several years. When I was doing an article in 2013 about Uplands Parks, Uplands Park potential disincorporation, I found out there is no process in state law to disincorporate third-class cities, home rule cities, or charter cities. So now, based off of this, you've added those classes of cities into the mix. You've lowered the percentage of signatures needed to trigger a disincorporation election. And you've also lowered the percentage needed to disincorporate a city from 60 to 50 percent plus one. So do you think that these changes, which, again, have to be brought forth by the people that actually live in these cities, are going to lead to cities around St. Louis County or elsewhere dissolving? You know, that that's a great question, but I do want your listeners to know that, you know, you were years ahead of the legislature in, in figuring that I'm out. I'm patting myself <laughs> on the back right here, but continue. But, but yeah, you know, that that is something that when we dealt with Senate Bill 5, you know, the Senate Bill 5 included all these measures to trigger, you know, if cities continue to, to violate uh, this law, then it, they could face a... Um, I forget. I'm not sure what the, quite the term disincorporation is. Disincorporation yeah, election. Forced, forced in disincorporation election. And so one of the things we, we looked at was these uh, third-class cities that, you know, there was no statewide system in place. And so I, I think this is a great example of, you know, kind of some bipartisan work done here that, you know, when we start looking around us, uh, Representative Burns from the St. Louis area, uh, who's a Democrat, you know, he, he had a great bill out there that had been passed through several House committees unanimously. And so we took that system that he had set up and, and applied it to the statewide. And I, I think that there will be um, some municipalities that need to look at how they're running their things, running their business, because there could be uh, some petitions being filed by some concerned citizens. Just as kind of a side note, and Representative Burns is definitely a true believer in disincorporation. He led, I think, the last successful disincorporation in St. Louis County of St. George, and yep. he had he had been pushing that bill for several years. It's an example that even though the Democrats are in a historic super minority, <laughs> they can still get things done. Now, uh, related to this, sort of, was all the crime bill stuff, which right at the that last week sort mm -hmm. of caught up in um, the provisions that were added, uh, the stand your ground provisions. Mm -hmm. uh, I know you were involved as far as the just the general crime bill. I just um, like your take on kind of how things progressed. And were you concerned at all about how the bill ended up with um, the uh, stand your ground provisions? Potentially, I mean, it depends what the governor does. He might veto it. He might not. Mm -hmm. But I I'm just interested in, in your thoughts. 
Yeah, you know, I am the, the chairman of the House Judiciary, but I believe that that was one bill that actually didn't come through my committee. Um, you know, and so that's what one of the interesting things is, you know, I didn't have as much background on, on that issue as a lot of the other, you know, issues surrounding surrounding that. So, um, you know, I think it will be interesting to, to see, but I believe, you know, I, I may be wrong on this, but I believe maybe Coster just came out in, su- in support of the bill. Well, yeah, I, well, basically how he did it was, <laughs> was he didn't say he was supporting it. Uh-huh. But he didn't say he was against it. Well, he sort of said, "Well, it seems like it's probably okay." It's kind of mm-hmm. how he is trying to play it, which <laughs> is rather intriguing. Now, yeah. of the other republic of the, all the Republican candidates for governor, though, only Hannaway has really come out strongly praising mm-hmm. that that provision. The other three have either said very little or nothing. And I think the other thing that bill does is that you no longer have to get a permit to conceal and carry anymore. Is that correct, Joe? I mean, I think that, that, that that's a pretty big change, given that the, the process to get a conceal and, conceal and carry permit is pretty rigorous. So, Well, it's sort of complicated. I don't want to get all the ins and outs. There's parts of it yet you, where you wouldn't need a permit, and I think parts of it you may still. Yeah, I mean, you don't need a, a permit to, to conceal carry here in the state of Missouri. However, if you were ever to leave the boundaries of the state of Missouri, uh, you would still need to get a CCW permit in order to effectuate that reciprocity with different states uh, around the nation to be able to conceal carry in those states. So that's what this bill would do, basically? Or, yes. is, that, or is that the law of the lay of the land right no, now? No, well, well, it's when this law, this goes into effect. But Correct. isn't that, but wasn't there an age limit on this, like like 21 or something, that, or, or did it remove that, the well, final version of the of the bill? Well, I, you know, I know with, with the CCW, it's always... It, it was 21. A few years ago, went down to 19. Right. Uh, you know, there there were some provisions also with campus carry, uh, being able to uh, carry on on uh, higher education campuses. That that also started out at 21, and through the, throughout the session, that got lowered down to 19, and then all of a sudden, it switched over to just staff only. Right. Uh, so you know, it, it was kind of a work in progress. So that may be the the ones that you were. Yeah. Well, yeah. Why about. do you think all these things are needed? Because I obviously. Missouri, I think, is a state that is generally considered, quote unquote, pro-gun. As Joe alluded to, the Democratic nominee for governor is has been endorsed by the National Rifle Association in 2012. But a lot of people who are proponents of gun control are going to look at all these things and think, why is this all necessary? How would you respond to that? Well, you know, the, some people view the, the permitting process as, as basically a tax because when you do go to get your CCW, you, there are fine are fees that you have to pay uh, in order to to get your CCW and you know and so I know the the bill handler in the house you know representative Bartlett sent out of the Springfield area you know one of the things he continued to say on you know during his floor speech was you know if if we were to put any type of fee on any other type of uh, amendment rights such as you know the first amendment and just you know charging any press to come into the the, the capital you know there there'd be outrage uh, so you know why is there a fee to be able to to be able to, to, I guess, exercise your Second Amendment right. Yeah. Although some would say that the uh, the press, I mean, there's different, there's maybe not direct fees, but there's different things in the legislature. Well, now you, you, we're now up in the attic, but that's a whole let, other let, show. Let's not go there. <laughs> that's I, a whole other show. Just just switching back to the to the Senate Bill Five expansion, just for a moment, I want to yeah. play a clip from State Representative Rochelle Walton Gray. She is a Democrat from Blackjack. She's departing because of term limits. 
She voted against this bill, and I believe she also voted against Senate Bill 5. She sponsored a whole bunch of bills, or co-sponsored a whole bunch of bills that changed the way police are, are trained, how they're held accountable, and how they do their jobs, because there, I think there were some body camera elements that either she or her colleagues supported. This is what she had to say about just the general focus of the legislature post-Michael Brown. They wanted to be able to say they did something, so I guess they focused on municipal court reform. But uh, we have to deal with the issue of biases in the police force. And I do want to say, though, I, I think that our police officers do a good job, and I think that we need to have mutual respect for one another. So it's, it's two-sided. But the policing practices bills um, wanted to, want, they dealt with cultural competency. And just having more of an um, indication of your biases, you may not feel that you're biased or anything. I wanted you to just respond to that sentiment because I think that there were some people in the Democratic caucus who felt that while they may have supported what you and Senator Schmidt did, they feel like a whole bunch more should have been done over the last two years. What do you have to say to that? Yeah, you know, I, I think we, we have addressed some issues. You know, one of the things that we haven't touched on in, in this podcast has been uh, body cameras. Um, you know, we, we did change the Sunshine Law to, to encourage more use of body cameras. For example, uh, St. Charles County, we, we purchased uh, body cameras quite a, quite a while ago, uh, but they've been sitting in a closet because they wanted some clarification on the Sunshine Law. Yeah, that came up. So, so that they don't, you know, open up a huge, you know, whole bunch of liability to themselves by by improperly uh, using the body cameras and releasing information that they shouldn't have um, so you know uh, you know I think from the get-go it's been pretty clear with the, the House of Representatives that you know mandating body cameras is, is a non-starter uh, just you know we're already getting sued for example on Senate Bill 5 for unfunded mandates the price tag on mandating body cameras is astronomical and it's not necessarily the upfront purchase of the, the body cameras it's the back end uh, retention of all those all those files of all those cameras that have been running all day uh, with every single different officer and I know that Texas has started a program like a grant program that's 10 million dollars and obviously Texas has a lot more money than Missouri but mm -hmm. is that with this this body camera law that's just been passed that clarifies that when the footage is released could that potentially be the next step of maybe starting a program to help some of the smaller agencies fund body camera programs? Yeah, you know, I think that that's always a, an option to, to worth, worthy of discussion. Um, but however, I've not heard of any proposals, any, anything like that. But again, I know they share a lot of those proposals that went through the, the public safety committee in the House, and I don't sit on that. So that maybe those discussions are going on, but I, I have not heard of any. What's the General Assembly, at least in the House side, general perception regarding body cameras. It was hard for me to tell for sure whether it was blanket support or if it was mixed. I mean, from your position, uh, dealing with a lot of these issues in your chairmanship, what's your assessment? Uh, yeah, I'm sure there's people on both sides, but I would I would think that the, the overwhelming majority of, of not just the, the House of Representatives, but the Republican caucus is, is support. You know, I think uh, what Representative uh, Rochelle Walton Gray said, you know, the vast majority of police officers are fine, upstanding citizens that are, are doing the, the, their job and doing it correctly and doing a great job. And so, you know, I think the overwhelming majority of these body cameras that do get released would show that police officers did the right thing in the right situation. Um, and so I know I, I would love for every 
police officer out there to, to be wearing a body camera is just, again, we're not going to mandate it because of the, the cost with it, and I think it would get thrown out by the courts. And on the footage release is actually a very important issue. It may seem like a tangential one, but I think that there are going to be people with real problems if someone like me could do a sunshine request of some police officer going into somebody's house that didn't end up doing anything wrong exactly. and me being able to see everything in their house. Like, those are legitimate privacy issues. I think with this particular bill, and I haven't studied it extensively, um, I, I think that there. I think that one of the possible things that I heard is you they, you can't release it until an investigation is closed, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, I think that there could be some First Amendment and and open government concerns about that. But again, it's kind of a situation where you have to get these parameters around the body camera footage before they're going to be widely available. That's kind of my understanding. So, Absolutely. So let's kind of switch a little bit into the ethics uh, arena. Uh -huh. House Speaker Todd Richardson made that topic a very big point of emphasis when he became the speaker last year. Absolutely. Um, the House, you know, this is my perception, and Joe, may, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. The House passed a lot of bills early, and many of them were actually fairly strong. Well, I know strong is kind of a subjective term, but I mean, there was a lobbyist gift ban that was pretty robust. I think there was a one-year cooling off period for lobbyists. There were several others dealing with whether consultants could, or whether lawmakers could be consultants for other lawmakers, and how uh, legislators turned lobbyists could use their campaign funds. Some of those got passed and, and went to the governor. Others got mired in the Senate and became significantly changed. So that's my perception. What was kind of your perception of how this entire discussion went forward? Well, I knew I could have told you a year ago when I was on, on this show that, you know, you know, Speaker Richardson is going to make a, a big point about ethics, and but no matter what was passed in whatever form, it, it's not going to be enough for some people. Uh, so, I mean, that's just the reality of the public. Or and, it would be too much for some people. No, I, I think no matter what, we're going to get criticized okay. for not for okay. not doing enough. Okay. Um, and, and it'll be pretty pretty loud criticism that we didn't do enough. So, I know from public per perception, you know, we'll be told that we didn't do enough. I, but I did think that we did pass. Uh, some good pieces of legislation. Again, not as strong as what was passed out of the House, but you know that, that's something with compromise with with the Senate uh, that happened. You know, for example, of how you know somebody who who's no longer in political office can spend their their campaign um, account. Yeah. Uh, also, there is a cooling off period. Again, not as strong as what the House it's passed. It's six months. It's six months rather than what the year that the, the House passed. I proposed. I you know I filed a bill that was a two year cooling off period. So it kind of tells you where my mind's at on that. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, and, and, and so again, you know, the, the lobbyist gift ban, uh, basically died over in the, in the Senate. Uh, that is something that, you know, I, I voted for, I'd be fine with that. That's not an issue. Uh, what was the other one? Uh, well, being able to work as a paid political yeah. consultant. That, 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 that did passed. get through. Yep. Yeah. So and they well, can't, so you can't, if you're a state legislator, you can't be a consultant to one of your colleagues and get paid now, while you're, while you're Okay, doing. this was I asked this to Senator Onder because he was kind of entangled in the situation eight years ago. But this entire mm -hmm. situation about lawmakers acting as consultant for other lawmakers was an issue that popped up when Rod Jetton was speaker almost Correct. ten years ago. Correct. And. The, there's kind of a subtext that it took eight or nine years for the legislature to ban this. Um, some would say, like, 
what took people so long to do this? And I guess that's my question for you. Uh, I'm in the same boat as you because, again, that's part of the, the ethics package that I've followed almost every single year I've been down in Jefferson City has been, uh, you know, did three things. One was the two-year cooling off period. One was, you know, banning paid political consultants as, you're, as if you're a sitting elected official. And the third thing was disclosure of the 501c4s, which I know also got tangled up in the Senate. Uh, so, you know, I... I'm completely on board with the uh, you know getting rid of the paid political consultants because I think it is you know especially if you're a speaker to come to one of your colleagues as a representative and say hey you know I, I'm the greatest political consultant that's ever been and you you should probably pay me and you know if if, if we do well you may even get a chairmanship out of it you know I think that's completely improper. Now the 501c4s for our listeners this is something I've been keenly interested in I did a really big story on this over a year ago. Uh, these are groups that can collect unlimited amounts of donations. They do not have to report their donors and they can and they are increasingly becoming involved in Missouri political campaigns. And right. uh, Coster, among others, has been saying that they had been calling for some sort of legislation that would require them to identify their donors at minimum if they're involved in Missouri political campaigns. Um, as you Correct. said, it got that kind of died in the Senate. Do you think there is any chance for any of that, something happening in the future or not? Um, you know, I, I think obviously it will, will determine who, be determined by who, who comes into power and, and the House leadership and Senate leadership. I, you know, I think as of, as of right now, probably not because, uh, again, you know, we do have these C4s. That, and, again, my, my, my bill does put a threshold on, say, not every C4 has to disclose all right. their donors. It shows that, you know, it, if you're going to become part of in, in, enthralled with the political process and engage in the political process, that's fine too. You just need to disclose who your donors are. Um, but you know, I, I think as we saw with this last session, there's not much appetite for it. Well, do you think it might get caught? Here is, and I'm I'm going to segue into campaign donation limits a bit. Okay, and the Missouri uh, legislature got rid of him in 2008. Well, at the time, the Republicans were pretty solidly in favor of getting rid of them, thinking transparency was the key. Now that there are some huge donations, like $1 million going to one candidate or 500000 going to another, some Republicans have said on the air on our show that they regretted their vote, and I think in part because they feel like it's been skewed. Well, will it take, as far as the 501c4s, let's say this fall, I'm, I'm just predicting that let's say certain candidates, there's 501c4s printing a whole lot of money either in favor of them or to uh, defeat them. Do you think it's going to take that kind of activity before the legislature sort of says, you know, maybe we have to do something about this? Correct. You know, I, I think I, I think you're absolutely correct that, you know, depending on how this beast evolves, um, you know, it, it could whimper away to nothing and then, become, then it becomes a non-issue. But, yeah, you know, the more and more they become – these C4s become engaged in the political process, I think you're absolutely going to have some some scorned politicians wanting some answers as far as who, who their donors are. Now, one person who has not repudiated their vote to get rid of campaign contributions is Attorney General Chris Coster, who could very well become the next governor. And none of the four Republican candidates support campaign donation limits. So mm -hmm. once Jay Nixon leaves the scene, the legislative pathway for campaign donation limits pretty much shuts. Although Coster has been a big one for uh, uh, donation identification for 501c4s. Right, but not limits. 
And until he comes on our show and says, I regret that vote and I support campaign donation limits, I'm going to continue saying he does not support them anymore. on our show, (laughs) in our little version of our show a few months ago, if you recall, he was open to revisiting some of this on donation limits because he says that when he voted for them, it wasn't $500,000 donations, that he is... And he is open to the idea of some curbs because of the huge amount, uh, to be fair. To be fair, you have to quote <laughs> We'll him. agree to disagree on that. My point for bringing this up is the reason I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm making a big deal about this is it has prompted some groups, mainly the Roundtable for Life, which is a, a notable anti-abortion group, to fund a, a constitutional amendment to cap contribution limits. They're, they turned in, according to them, over 200,000 signatures. They had a million dollars behind it, which means that it was a pretty serious effort. And it remains to be seen whether there's enough signatures to put it on the ballot or whether it's going to survive a likely court challenge. Um, But my my assumption is if it it passes those two thresholds, it's probably going to pass. Is that your assumption as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think if it gets the vote of the people, I I think it would... a campaign contribution limit would pass. So what do you think that would mean for Missouri politics that for limits to be put back on again in, in the way that it's done on this particular proposal? You know, on, I haven't really studied the, the details of this initiative petition, but I think, you know, depending on how, how it's worded, uh, you know, you could see what, what was happening in the past where you had some of these bigger donors just set up a whole bunch of different packs and then, again, just funnel money through these different packs back to the candidate of their choice. Um, so, you know, without knowing the details, you know, I'd, I'd, that'd be the first question I have is, is would that still be able to be gamed? Now, um, the General Assembly, a uh, little history here, back in the 90s when donation limits were put on, actually there was an initiative petition that put it before the voters. The General Assembly acted and put up limits that were not quite as onerous, but a tiered set of limits. This was under Mel Carnahan. Then the, the public approved these more restrictive limits. Then we had court fights that went on for almost five years before it finally was resolved what Missouri's limits are. And most of those lower limits that were approved by the public were tossed out. It ended up being fairly close to the limits that the General Assembly approved. Then fast forward, 2008, everything's tossed out. My question being that once, I mean, because I think I tend to agree with you. If this proposal makes the ballot, it's likely to get approved. Um, and the governor indicates that he will put it on the November election. Uh, so do you foresee the General Assembly, because they've done this with other things, where an issue gets passed, they come back and revisit it and either try to tweak it or maybe put up something else and replace? Do you expect the General Assembly will then have to confront this? With, because there are... Which we'll get, to, we'll get to in a minute. But yeah. Yeah, that I'm just interested in your thoughts. I will say my thought would be is, again, you're, this initiative petition is going to face court challenges on the front end right. of even getting on the ballot, but then also on the back end. Uh, I think, like I said, once I think that if the, the voters would approve it, if it gets on the ballot, and then if it once the voters do approve it, it's going to face a significant court battle uh, after the fact. And I think you know, if I'm a legislator still at that time, then I'm probably going to say that I want to sit back and see how this court battle plays out before. Otherwise, we may just be doing mental gymnastics yeah. for nothing. Well, okay. let's do let's do one more backflip on this before we move on to another topic. One of the things that I, I realized right away was this initiative does not cap contributions on municipal or county elections. 
Now, I want to just point out that I talked with the Missouri Ethics Commission Executive Director James Clark about this. Um, I asked specifically because of the fact that there are no limits on running for a mayor or county commissioner, whether somebody could file a campaign committee for one of those offices, raise an unlimited amount of money, and then switch to state legislator, statewide office. There's an advisory opinion from him saying from 10 years ago, saying that you would not be able to do that, but the issue is going to have to be revisited. Um, but just from a political standpoint, I asked three Democrats, which I'm about to play right now, uh, Jill Shoup, Gina Mitten, and Jeremy LaFaver, whether this was going to be a problem from a practical perspective for this particular uh, proposal to work. Here's what they had to say. Do I want it to be perfect? You betcha. Do I think that it should apply up and down the, the spectrum? Of course. But this is what's moving, and I will take it and support it and hope that once it gets on the books that the Missouri General Assembly will then recognize that it's time to take a serious look to make sure that it is comprehensive across, this, across all elections. One thing that we've learned over time is if there is a way to get around the law of limiting campaign contributions and or hiding who the donors are, or where the money's coming from, people will find it, which is really unfortunate. I do think that if the public gets to vote on campaign contribution limits uh, as a constitutional amendment, if should that pass, what it will do is send a message to the legislators that you need to, to change this. You need to reform this because this is what the public wants. I think that could be a, a sticking point for some people, but when it comes down to, you know, Real ethics reform that happened in this chamber happened because of the leadership of Todd Richardson this year, and I believe that wholeheartedly. If there's something we can do legislatively, and I don't think that there's much, but if there's something we can do, the real only thing, only ethics legislation uh, that matters or that will have an impact is campaign contribution limits. So the common thread of those three clips is they kind of see the lack of limits there as a problem, but it's not going to prevent them from supporting it if it gets on the ballot. But they, they're saying that if it passes, it may incentivize the Republican-controlled legislature to limit donations to municipal and county elections. But given the fact that, you know, the legislature now doesn't want to cap any donations to any office, is that really a realistic expectation if this initiative passes? Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, we routinely see um, people who are involved in, in local uh, elections. Uh, for example, Senator Schmidt, you know, he was an alderman before he came on, our councilman. I'm not sure what they call him out in his municipality. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I was uh, going to say he was like a conciliator or something like that, but you know, continue. The, yeah, you know, he moved up to the state senate. You know, uh, Senator Dempsey, who was my senator, he, he started out on the city council out in St. Charles, out in St. Charles City. Uh, so, you know, you do see these local, you know, alderman and mayor kind of become the, the breeding ground as far as moving up up the ladder into state rep, state state senator, and, and the statewide. So um, let's kind of switch a little bit in our remaining minutes we have up to the upcoming uh, electoral campaign. Do you have an opponent this year, by the way? I do. I have a Democrat opponent. Okay. So I wanted to just ask you, as somebody who, I guess, in 2012 ran when that district was, I would say, fairly competitive. That was a pretty fairly competitive district. Yeah, I believe I was the fourth closest uh, race in the state oh, that with the Republican. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, because you were facing off against Wayne Hankey, who I think had been elected office before. Yep. How do you think the national environment is going to affect state house races like yours, where Republicans are facing 
Democratic opponents in districts that are not super Republican? Uh, you know, I, I think we have our, what's called our House Republican Can- Campaign Committee set up to, to help with these with these state representative races. And I think we have built a system infrastructure that, that has worked so well uh, that I honestly don't see it being an issue. You know, in 2012, when I was running on on the on the you know election, you know, I was on the same ballot as Todd Aiken, and we all know how what, what he did to kind of throw my chances down down the drain. But but you know, with the infrastructure and system that's set up in place with HRCC, I think you know when when you start moving down the ballot, it's going to become less and less of a. Well, some have argued. Impact. Yeah, some have argued Donald Trump is like Todd Aiken on steroids to Republicans. <laughs> now some have argued I, that he's not. I've like been Joe. arguing argue, for months. <laughs> I've. I just want people to know for months I have given Trump at least a 40 percent chance of getting elected. Yeah, and I would not put myself in the category of thinking that he won't win Missouri at this point because I've seen no evidence to see say that Hillary Clinton will win Missouri. But is he going to be a liability not only on state house candidates, but also on statewide candidates who are running right now? Yeah, I think that is something that needs to be addressed. But I think regardless of who your presidential nominee is, you know, it has to be addressed. You know, back in 2012, Mitt Romney going on vacation with his dog on the roof and, <laughs> and you know, keep going back down through the line that, you know, the the federal level and the, the federal politics, you know, do need to be addressed by these local. And, you know, again, it comes down to what system you have in place, your ground game, getting your message out, where you stand on the issues with whether you're in agreement with the presidential nominee or, or you're you know that's when you, where you're able to you know distance yourself you know be able to say how you are um, how your position is uniquely different than the presidential nominee now 10 years ago the general assembly got rid of straight ticket voting which allowed per- person to vote like just republican yeah. or democrat and automatically voted all, uh, all cast ballots for people in that party all the way down uh-huh. they did so largely because they were trying to uh uh, improved GOP chances in, in St. Louis County. And they were very open about that. Okay, well, it didn't work. Democrats are still running St. Louis County. But my question is, um, has that hurt Republican chances? Because since then, let's put it this way, Romney won handily uh, Missouri in 2012. And of course, then, and then Aiken lost handily and then I, I've always contended that it was actually McCaskill's coattails that helped some candidates, some Democratic statewide candidates below her. Mm-hmm. My point being, did the GOP kind of shoot itself in the foot? Because let's say that Trump, let's say he continues to have Trump mania, okay? And let's say, you know, it's in Missouri and you've got Trump mania at the top. Well, they still have to go through and vote for everything. Or whereas right now you see a high percentage of people, they go in, they vote for president, one or two others, and then they leave. I mean, has it, has it turned out to be sort of a uh, maybe a bad move for the GOP that they did that? I mean, has it hurt down ballot people like yourself? No, I, I don't think that was a miscalculation on okay. that part. You know, I, again, I keep going back to, the, you know, I think the, the Republican Party here in the state of Missouri has a better infrastructure and system in place to, to help its candidates than, than the Missouri Democratic Party. And that's true. And, okay. and, and so the, I think, you know, with the way our system and infrastructure is set up, that, you know, we're going to con- continue to win competitive close races. Um, you know, yes, we may have a candidate go out and, and say something stupid or do something stupid or get caught doing something. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think, you know, if you've got a good candidate, he's 
better chance being a Republican than a Democrat. I guess my parting question is right now that I think Republicans have 116 seats. I know the Democrats have 45. I, I may be off by one or two. That's I think a, I think that's pretty much a high watermark, yes. although I think that they had 117 at one point. Do you think it's realistic for the Republicans to keep that level after 2016? Because, I mean, even the most optimistic Democratic uh, persons not going to argue that the Democrats are going to take control anytime soon, huh. but they are hopeful that maybe they can whittle down that number. Like, what do you, what are your expectations for how big the House majority will be after 2016? Well, I, I think just to clarify, I think with the special election of Representative Plocker uh, in St. Louis County, I believe we are up to 117. Yeah. Um, so I think we're at 117 now. Uh, at one point we were at 118. Um, with the special elections again, we're back to that, 117. That's right, so, because there's a vacancy now, yeah. uh, Don Gosen's vacancy, Correct. which would, if it was filled, would go Republican. Right. Yes. So there are 116, but really there could be 117. But continue. Yeah, and so uh, you know, looking forward to this cycle, you know, it, there's a long way to go before it all shakes out in November. Uh, but you know, I, I think we are going to have some challenges over in, on the west side of the state on the state rep level. Um, that are going to have, you know, I think there's at least three off the top of my head that I can think of that will be tight races that, you know, we'll, we'll need to put, put a bunch of resources into to make sure that our, our incumbents come back. Uh, and so, you know, I think if we're able to maintain those, at least those three seats, we're going to be looking pretty good. Uh, until next time, though, you can find all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how would we follow you on Twitter? Cornejo for Mo. Mo, for Mo. That's C-O-R-N-E-J-O for Mo. Okay. The number four. No. Spell out four. F-O-R. Some people do the number. <laughs> yep. Some people do it all spelled out. And, we'll an, be... and an M-O. It's yeah. a free country. It's a free country. <laughs> we'll be back next time. Until then, so long. <laughs>